What's up, everyone? Today is, I don't even know what the day is. It is Monday, November 28th, 2016, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst. Hope you're doing really well today. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Luke Thomas, and I'm the host of this podcast. Three parts to it, of course. Uh, we review the action in a general way through the card of what happened over the weekend, take a look at something a little bit more in detail in the second, and then take a look at what's ahead. Not a whole lot to get to this time. Just UFC Melbourne and or UFC Fight Night. Uh, what is it? What they call Brunson versus no Whitaker versus Brunson and or UFC Fight Night 101. Uh, that's really the only thing of significance that happened over the weekend in terms of mixed martial arts. So we'll just run through that a little bit. We're going to take a look at something very very small in the second segment, and then we'll look ahead at actually to the weekend where it's actually going to be kind of busy. Two Bellator events back to back on Friday and Saturday night, and the finale of the Ultimate Fighter 24. But we'll get to that just a little bit later. So. Without further ado, I'm going to try something else with how we film this. Let's take a look at the fight card for UFC Fight Night 101 and talk about some of the things in, in a little bit more in depth, although this is still segment one. Okay, UFC Fight Night 101. This took place at the Rod Laver Arena in, as John Anna kept saying, Melbourne. Melbourne! Uh, Melbourne, however you pronounce it properly, I don't know the answer to that. I'm just going to read it phonetically here. Melbourne, Australia. Uh, good attendance, actually. 13,721. I don't have the figures on the gate. I don't believe, although they might be out, as a matter of fact. Uh, I'll dig those up here in just a second. I'll put them on the screen if uh, if and when I find them. But in any event, this was supposed to be Jacques Ray versus Rockhold 2. Of course, that fell through. So it was headlined by Robert Whitaker, uh, who defeated Derek Brunson at 407 of the first round. And this was an interesting fight. Brunson is really, really good about steering people into his power hand. And you saw him try to do that a little bit early, and it didn't really work. And I don't know if he threw the game plan out. I don't... Here's my point. Did you see him just running after uh, Robert Whitaker? I'm very surprised by that. You know, look, maybe that's something that works for him in training. I'm always really skeptical or a little bit hesitant to say, well, so-and-so doesn't work. There are some techniques that people try that, you know, they work sometimes, but they're so low percentage that I'll just say they don't work. But everything is just a percentage issue. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Most of the time, things that aren't technical don't. But here's my point. It's one thing to just chase a guy down. It's quite another to chase a guy down when you're running behind the two black lines following him. In other words, you're sort of running along the fence line. And he did it twice. And he paid for it one time where he was going for the takedown and couldn't get it. And then the second time he got caught coming in um, and got dropped. And, and and then from there, of course, you saw Whitaker eventually set up the jab cross, crossing really land, but then he threw the head kick. And that knocked him out. But I don't understand the strategy there by Derek Brunson, who's a very good fighter, a very good athlete, a really talented middleweight. But that one was surprising, I have to be honest. Doing it once is a bad idea. Remember, that's how Fabricio Verdum got caught. Chasing someone along the fence line in mixed martial arts, it just creates a ton of different problems, including the ability to react, the ability to move, uh, the angle at which you're following someone, which gives them the ability to turn on the corner and punch, which is what you saw Robert Whitaker do. Um, so Robert Whitaker looked great, don't get me wrong, but I just, um, I don't know. Maybe that's worked for Derek Brunson in training, but I have a hard time believing that that's something that most coaches would recommend doing at least to the extent that he was doing it in that way. So uh, some questionable strategy there anyway from Derek Brunson, who I still have, I do believe he's a very good middleweight, but that was not an awesome performance. I want to give a shout-out very quickly, if I can, in that first round. Go back and watch, I don't have the timestamp, but go back and watch the lead uppercut that 
um, Robert Whitaker throws. What a brilliant lead uppercut. You see him bouncing on his feet. You see him wait for the big step forward from Brunson. And as he does it, he turns using his front foot, front foot as the pivoting point and pivots with his back foot as he slides out of the way of the punch and then digs the uppercut so that the punch is sort of coming here. He digs the uppercut in between it while reaching. Um, and then actually, as he pivots, puts himself in line for Brunson as he pivots and then throws the right. Not didn't land all that cleanly, but just putting himself in positions for having strong offense over and over and over again. Um, you have to love it. Really, really amazing stuff there from Robert Whitaker, who had the biggest one of his career. Uh, Andrew Holbrook, Holbrook, excuse me, defeating Jake Matthews, 29-28, 28-29, 29-28. Very close contest. Um some of the differences appear to be, obviously, some of the ankle attacks the uh, uh, from Holbrook. He was doing awesome, some overall wrestling that was pretty good. Bit of a setback for Matthews, but he's so young, I'm not too concerned about it. I also have to say, he, you know, he's one of these guys who was looking to get a UFC fight outside of Australia. I'm not saying that that won't happen now, but maybe this is a, a moment to recalibrate exactly where he is. Omari Akhmedov defeating Kyle Noak. 29-28, 29-28, 30-27. Kyle Noak retiring, it turns out, um, after this. So thank you to Kyle Noak for a wonderful career and a very successful and distinguished one. Um, we wish you the best of luck in, in all of your future endeavors. Alex uh, Volkanovsky defeating Yusuke uh, Kasuya. TKO punches at 206 of the second round. This was a really fun kind of grappling back and forth. Ultimately, it was the ground and pound of Volkanovsky on top. He was really good at finding angles, launching his body side to side um, as he was throwing the ground and pound while riding any kind of knee shield or push off from uh, Kasuya. So really strong performance from him. Kasuya has a hell of a chin, man. Took a while to put that guy away. But uh, a, a great back and forth. Uh, it just shows you how fun and mobile maybe MMA grappling can be under certain conditions. How about this one? Tyson Pedro defeating Khalil Roundtree. Rear naked choke at 407 of the first round. A lot to say about this one, but we'll talk about that in the second segment. We're going to go a little bit in detail there with some of the slides. Uh, Daniel Taylor, Danielle, excuse me, defeating uh, Saya He Ham. I always call her search engine optimization He Ham. Split decision. Now, here's the weird part about this. These are the scores 28 29, 30 27, 30 27. Now, look, maybe you can cobble a case together for uh, Daniel Taylor. I don't know how you give her three rounds. I don't know how you do that. Uh, that, to me, seems quite shocking. And two judges did it. Uh, that is That merits some further review of those judges' ability to do this job. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you can give her three rounds. Uh, on the prelim card, how about, and I say this quite lovingly, how about old-ass Dan Kelly? Defeating Chris Camozzi, unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-27, and then 30-27. Interesting scorecard there. How about Dan Kelly, man? Getting after it, finding the, a, a home for the left hand in the first round, uh, basically outgrappling him in the second, then sort of a mix of that uh, in the third. Camozzi, you know, I thought had a decent game plan, uh, trying to stick behind the jab, but he just wasn't, there wasn't enough footwork and movement going on to make that possible. He would use it a little bit and then kind of get caught flat-footed at times. Um, I will say, did you guys notice in the second round the electric chair uh, sweep submission he was going for? Electric chair, so you have the you have you're you're, you're on bottom half guard. You have one leg over the top and of uh, theirs, 
Um, and then with that, you're using that to lock up the, or, or I use, I should say, control the lockdown, the thing that Anderson Silva had on Daniel Cormier at UFC 200. On the same side, the leg is over. You have the underhook uh, wrapping around their body. On the other hand, you have a, your, this hand underneath their leg, and you're going to do what's called, and I'm not a master of this at all, but this is what someone who does these all the time taught me. You do what's called a whip up, where you essentially push them up over your head. It's more complicated than that. You're using the lockdown and everything else to put them over your head. And then you use the underhook on their thighs, essentially to come out, turn the corner, and get on top. And you can pass from there and, and everything else. He, he had all of the pieces in place. He had the overhook, excuse me, he had the underhook with his arm. He had the lockdown. He had the underhook, and he, but the whip up just was wasn't much of it. Man, a guy like Dan Kelly, you know, who's big and strong and four-time Olympian and also has a background in judo, those guys, their base is going to be super, super, super heavy. So even if you might have some technical skills that they aren't accustomed to seeing, that old-school base is just going to be hard to get around. But Daniel Kelly, you know, he, despite getting slashed into that first round with that elbow, found a way to persevere, stuck it out. It's hard to fight. You know, we're saying Chris Camozzi didn't do enough footwork. It's hard. And Daniel Taylor, too. you got to give her some credit, man. It's hard to fight on the back foot like that constantly in retreat and land meaningfully without being caught. And you saw that she had some trouble with that in that first round. Ham was landing that left um, at a fairly decent clip. And same with Camozzi. It's just hard to fight like that. you got to cut angles and get them to miss a lot. And... Um, you know, they didn't do enough of it in either of those, either of those cases. Well, I guess Daniel Taylor did, but, um, you know, Chris Camozzi did some of it. People were asking, why didn't he throw leg kicks? I guess he was worried about being taken down. I'm not sure. I'm not saying he couldn't have done it and been okay, but maybe that's what the thought process was. I don't really know. Uh, Damian Brown defeating John Tuck, split decision, 29-28, 29-28, 28-29. Jonathan Mounier defeating um, Richard Walsh, 30-27 across the board. How about Ben Wynn and Gian Herrera? Well, Herrera. Um, ben Wynn looking amazing. Switching stances through combinations. Uh, you know, Herrera coming out with the Fabricio Verdum flying sidekick and, and really getting after it. But after that point, man, he just had nothing for Ben Wynn. Ben Wynn looked so sharp in this performance. Like he had cleaned up a lot. You know, the Lewis Smolko fight... Go back to the Monday Morning Analyst. Like you can see pieces of his grappling game in that one, where you can be like, "This guy is obviously really good." Now that was just Lewis Smolka's day, but you can you can tell, man, this is a technical guy who's athletic. He hits hard. He stays in your face. He's got a lot of different ways he can hurt you. He had a nice jab. He had a nice uh, a, a series of different combinations. Could beat you at range. Could back you up. Could work you against the fence. Could work the body if he needed to. Could mix in the wrestling with the dominant top control whenever he needed that too. You know, Herrera had his moments here or there, but that was really Ben Wynn's fight and um, a showcase of just a guy who already had a lot of ability, sharpening them, sharpening them, sharpening them, sharpening them. That, that loss to Louis Smolka. I said at the time, I'll say it again, I think it was kind of a good thing because he definitely showed he had skill. Maybe not some of the unorthodox things that someone like Louis Smolka can do, but a guy with that kind of potential and the right work ethic, man, they can go places. And I think it's what you're seeing from Ben Wynn. Really strong, redemptive performance from him. He looked tremendous. I feel bad for Herrera, you know, a guy who's going through some economic struggles, but um, it's a tough sport, it's a tough business, and, and Ben Wynn is doing all the right things to succeed. Uh, and then lastly, Jason Knight defeating Dan Hooker. This is a bit of a fun fight back and forth. 29-28, 30-27, and then 30-26. Uh, Marlon Vera defeating Ning Guanju. 29-28, 29-28, 29 Marlon Vera, I have not a whole lot to say about this fight. Um, decent ability to uh, weather some of the, the 
strong leg kicks that uh, Guangzhou was throwing, but there's not a whole lot to say beyond that. But how about Janelle Lausa defeating Yao Jiguei 30-27 across the board? The boxing from Lausa. Whoa. Tremendous, tremendous stuff. Now, you can see that there's some issues with his ground game. It's a little bit underdeveloped. We'll see where he goes from there. But he looks, obviously, quite athletic. Quick, fast hands, accurate punching, a wide repertoire of hand attacks, good hand speed. Um, there's a lot to like from him, at least standing up. So we'll see where he can go from here. A nice um, start in the octagon. I think he's got, he needs some development here in this flyweight division, but an interesting addition and obviously someone they can use when they go back to the Philippines whenever that Maybe in 2017 if they do that at all. So there's your card. Uh, by the way, oh yeah, Fight of the Night, Robert Whitaker versus Derek Brunson. Performance of the Night, Robert Whitaker, and then Tyson Pedro. So with that, let's take a look at what old Tyson Pedro did. Is He took on Khalil Roundtree. Um, it was a good performance from Tyson Pedro. But it, to me, this was another thing where you go back to like the Derek Brunson-Robert Whitaker fight. Did Robert Whitaker look good? Absolutely. Just some questions about some of the strategy employed by Derek Brunson. They're not saying Robert Whitaker wouldn't have beaten him anyway, but there's a little bit going on. Uh, a little bit of the same thing with Tyson Pedro and Khalil Roundtree. I'll show you what, what I mean. Let's take a look at the slides now. Okay, here we are. This is Khalil Roundtree on, on the ground against uh, Tyson Pedro. Now, it should be noted, Khalil Roundtree had a nice double jab cross on the left hand that landed flush on the uh, chin of Tyson Pedro and dropped him, but Pedro got back up and eventually got him to the ground. Um, this is towards the end of the fight. I just want to show some things here from Khalil Roundtree. Now, let me say this again. A, I've said this before. If something works for someone in training and is not quote-unquote technical, you got to give him that leeway, but there's just some things that that Khalil Roundtree does. I've noticed over and over again. Um, I'm not sure are going to work for him at this level, and this is what I mean. When he is in a position like this, where he's half guard, or someone is basically advancing on him on the ground slowly. Remember, jujitsu. It's not so much about a sprint to a position, but you climb to it, right? I see him often turn to his base and try to just walk out of it a little bit. Um, and you saw that with Holly Holm in a different context, but you saw a little bit of the same mentality of Holly Holm doing that against Misha Tate. But it's not going to work a lot, especially at this level. You can't just walk out of someone's control without um, giving up some other kind of um, another form, and frankly, a more dominant form of control. There's just some things that have to be established. It should give you like respect for, you know, Jose Aldo's takedown defense or. You know, somebody who's really good at scrambling on the on the ground, pick your, you know, pick Joseph Benavidez or something, right? Um, it's not just that those, those guys are beating you with speed. They're establishing all the right conditions to get up off the bottom. But in any case, um, let's take a look at this here. So, Clear Roundtree is obviously a great, talented fighter, and he's really good, really good striking. But there's just this one thing he keeps doing that uh, he did it earlier in this round, too, when he knocked Pedro down. Now, Pedro went for a takedown, and he tried to just turn his back and roll out of it. It's not going to work too often. So here we are. I want to real quickly point out something. He's got a uh, forearm here against the neck slash chin of uh, Pedro. A couple things wrong here. Now, he doesn't have this hand on the inside, the left hand on the inside to block that bicep. Not the end of the world, Not, but just not a great place you necessarily want to be. And his forearm is good, but ideally it would want to be a little bit lower to the ground. And this would be kind of on the shoulder. And the reason why is because you can see if someone wants to scoop this elbow, they can. Um, so that would be a problem, and he's got the head controlled here with the cross face. Now, he's against the fence, which works mostly to Roundtree's benefit, but you get the idea that this is good, could be better, right? All right, so he lets it go, and he's punching. You can see he's still, he's pushing the head away, 
And that's not nothing, but ideally you would want to have the arm on the inside here, not wrapping over the top of it. You want to get, you never want to have your head controlled. Here's a general rule for anyone out there who grapples. You just never want to let someone control your head. If they're controlling your head with a cross face or if they're grabbing behind it when they're working from side control, like Habib Nurmagomedov does that a lot or whatever, they're controlling you. That's one of the that's one of the dominant ways in which you keep somebody controlled is you control their spine, right? You control their head and you control their hips and you've basically got them where you want them. So that's why half guard is pretty good. You're controlling a hip and you're controlling a side of the head. It's not a perfect form of control, but that's just conceptually, that's what we're trying to express here. And now you can see what he's trying to do is he wants to press this down so he can get his knee out. But he's not anywhere close, actually. Despite the fact that he's got him controlled here, and yes, his hips are flat to the mat, you have to get your knee past their hip line. Or, depending on your position, your knee past their knee line. And there's different ways you can do it. You can sort of walk your heel-toe, heel-toe, heel-toe. And if you drop your hips here, not all the way to the ground, but you know you drop your weight a little bit, that knee will slowly come out, and then you can push it down, and you can you can do what Demi and Maya does all the time. And then you move to like something like three-quarter mount. But it's not quite there yet. And I think Roundtree knows it. And Roundtree's also like, huh, maybe I can get an underhook here, although if he's still controlled here there's a limited good that that will do him. So let's just sort of follow what goes along here. Now you can see the position. St same thing here. He can't really pass here. He can't. If he wants to, he could even get a lockdown if he was really conscientious about it. But um, this is a dominant form of control. Don't misunderstand me. Remember, he's got the head wrapped. His weight's down. I'm sure he's heavy as an MFer on top. But just want to point out that knee is you can't just slide it out. Uh, it may feel like you can, but you can't. That knee needs to be past the hip line, and it's not. Right? We keep going. Same thing. Now you see Roundtree doing the right thing, getting that underhook. He just has to scoot out towards the same side as the underhook. That's what he would need there. Right? You've got the leg. You always want to have the underhook on the same side you have the leg on the outside. And he could help scoot himself up, get his weight behind him, plant with his left hand, and maybe come to his base or, or, or something. But he would do that in a safe way where he'd be maintaining that inside control, right? So that's not a bad idea. The problem is it's just going to be hard to do. In fact, you can see at this point, Tyson Pedro re-establishes, uh, it looks to be on both sides, but certainly on the left side. I, you know, maybe he didn't have on the right side. But you can see he re-establishes that. He re-pummeled in because having that inside control, I mean, I don't know how many times we can talk about it on this podcast. It's so absolutely fundamentally critical to have to everything, to everything you need it. So here's what Tyson Pedro is doing. This is the old Demi and Maya special, right? Look at that tripod up on the balls of his feet. He is driving his weight all the way up, but he's not losing balance, which is key. And he's able to maintain this because he has his underhook here. He's controlling the head. And you can see, look at him. Look at the folds of the skin here. He's burying his head into the face of Tyson, of, excuse me, of Khalil Roundtree. And he's using his arms to squeeze and control that position even tighter, right? In other words, he's scrunching all of this up, if that makes sense. He's using his arm on one side to control the head of Khalil Roundtree. He's using his own head to control the other, keeping him nice and centered, using that underhook to prevent him from using his hands to push the knee away. Even if he can touch the knee away, he can't really, you know, shove into it. So he's being controlled here, and it, all of this helps him balance too. If I can keep tight here, and I can put pressure here, and I can tripod up, this is, a, at least for a moment, a very stable structure. And it controls you in a number of different ways. It controls your spine, um, and you can't really use your hands a whole lot for more. He'd have to re-pummel in here to really do a whole lot with it. 
and he can't. And this is the really interesting part about this. You see him drive this knee up. Watch what happens. Now, this is not a pass. He is not passed yet. But what do you notice? The knee is beginning to get past the hip line, which will then allow you to set up the pass or or to begin the process of passing. Um, there's not a whole lot Roundtree can do at this particular juncture. And you might be like, well, you know, why not? Well, because he doesn't have, I mean, maybe he could use the, far, the, the left arm to push on that knee. I'm not exactly sure what he's doing with his left hand. I can't really see it, but this one you can see is locked up. So you notice Pedro didn't go for the pass until that was established, and then he can go for that. Again, you have to climb to a pass for the most part. All right. So he brings that up, and now you can see he puts it back down, but he's past the hip line. You see that? Now there's things he can do. He can drop his weight one way. He can drop his weight another way. There's a lot of different options he has here. He can bring the instep around and then slide it down. There's just a lot of different options he has here now that this top of the, this is controlled. Okay, so here's the issue. Roundtree just drops his legs. Well, what does that give Tyson Pedro? Everything. And you see, what is Roundtree trying to do? He's trying to just roll. I'm not I'm not sure I understand the I mean again I haven't had a chance to explain it I haven't had a chance to speak to him about it this might be something again let's be very fair to Khalil Roundtree this might be something that works very well for him in training I don't know the answer to that I just know as a general rule as a general rule of thumb you you can't just roll in a circumstance like this if you have to you got to just as someone climbed into mount you might have to climb your way out maybe if you're super explosive this can work but you got to be your timing has to be really good, and you can see already knee is coming down, and he's got this foot stopping it, and he never lets go of the bottom sort of shoulder of the right arm to prevent the rotation of Roundtree from really going in there anywhere. I mean, you can just see Khalil's just sort of on this right hip at this point, All right? There he is still, and and Pedro is keeping that upper body from rotating as much as possible. Now, at some point, Roundtree's a big, strong, athletic guy. He's going to get some movement going. And you can see I got two shots of that there. Okay, so what does Pedro do? He's like, okay, I've basically stopped the roll. Now I want to control his hips. So he, he sits back, and he puts the foot tight to the hip. Now, there's no body triangle, but this is sort of similar to what that might be like. And now he's trying to wrap the throat. So he has the hook on one side, and he's wrapping the chin on the other. That's generally the way you want to do it. Or you, can, you don't have to do it that way, but that's certainly a way you can do it, depending on your perspective and, and, and some of the things you might like. Now, I thought what he was going to do was fall to the same side choking arm. Maybe push off or something. I'm not exactly sure how he was planning on doing this. Um, that's typically the way you want to fall. Now, there's a lot of debate about that now. You know, we saw that against you saw uh, Mickey Gall do that against CM Punk, and, and I praised him for it, and I and I wouldn't change it. It was all correct, but there is some reason to believe that if you want to fall, with, this is called the strong side. You can fall to the weak side if the weak side is under their arm, and you're controlling that wrist um, because it sets up like arm bars. It sets up, you know, I don't know, a number of other things you could do. But um, what he does is just goes right for the choke. So there is no like technical weak side as such. Um, I mean, this side, you've already got the frame for the choke, but you don't have control of the wrist here. But I just want to point out something here. Look at this. Now, you can see Roundtree's doing the right thing. He's looking into the choke, and there is no real choke because it's over the back of the shoulder. 
Here's the interesting part about this. I would need to talk to Tyson Pedro to see if this was true. I believe this to be intentional. You would think you would want this wrapped up tightly behind here, no space. You want her head down here. You you would want like you want to squeeze your elbow to your body. He's not quite doing that. If you go back and you watch it in real time, he's almost pinching around the shoulder on purpose. I think he's doing that to help control the bottom shoulder just a little bit. And then to help him slide into position as that comes off. Now, I don't know that to be sure. That could be totally wrong. But you watch him do it in real time. He wrenches behind here. Like, you see him locking up this gable grip. And you see him kind of circling in on it in that space. Rather than trying to come over the top of it to finish the choke as we would commonly do. So that was kind of interesting. So now he does what? You did see this in the Mickey Gall and Punk thing. Uh, he snatches him off of his base. Why? Because this is a, I mean, you're still being dominated here, but that's not as bad as being here. That's worse, right? When someone takes you, not merely to your side, but to your side and behind you, that's what you don't want to do. And he does fall to the quote-unquote weak side here, as it were. Um, but on a weak side, you do at least have control of the shoulder. And I wonder if he was back here like this, maybe it helps him get the pull. If you just pull on someone's head, maybe you can't get it. Maybe this to like have like a sort of like a bootstrapped shoulder control there. I'm not exactly sure, but it, it, it was interesting to note how he was trying to lock up this ch choke around the shoulder itself. That is something I need to ask him about. I, I've never seen that, I don't think. All right, so he snatches him off of his base. Now he's got this full hook in, and the other hook's going to come in on top. So this is where we are. Now, the choking arm is the one on top, so technically, unless... I mean, if that bootstrapped um, shoulder control is preventing him from rolling, uh, then maybe that's the case. But remember, they call it the weak side because um, you should be able to... If there's a choke going on and the choking arm is on top, then the bottom arm should allow you, if there's no shoulder control, to get your shoulders to the mat a little bit. Now, it's going to be harder if you're getting choked, but you can at least turn a little bit. And here's what I'm wondering. I, you know, look, if someone's choking you even with a gable grip, it's going to be hard to move. Just understand that. However, I think his instinct, Roundtree's instinct to turn and base is what gets him in trouble here. He'd actually have to turn the other way because you can see the choking arm is on top. You can't really turn into that exactly. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't turn away from this exactly because you'll bring them with you, which we'll get to in just a moment. But there's nothing here really controlling his bottom shoulder anymore. Roundtree's got two on one here, and you can see he's not really being choked. I mean, I'm sure it's very uncomfortable, but this is the point I'm trying to make. You'd have to rotate, watch my mouse, you'd want to rotate into him. You don't want to rotate away from him because you're going to bring him with you. And you'll see that as Roundtree tries to go to his base. But you can look, he's got the hook, so you're just going to take him with you. And as you take him with you, you're going to allow him just enough space to corkscrew that elbow a, a little bit further in like that. Look how much further that's in now. Go back to this, right? They're basically shoulder to shoulder here. At, at best, it's 50-50, and you can see there's daylight here. You're, if you're Khalil Roundtree, you kind of want to sit your hips out and turn into him. But he goes to his base, and look at him able to twist the top of his torso to finish that choke and then you can see him on this side he takes his arm and it's not quite as deep as he wants so he wrenches it you can see him it's not merely that he moves his hand up 
I want to be very clear about this. You can see him wrench his fingers higher up and then use the choking arm to like slowly lever it up to the point where he gets the tap. So this is just sort of my point about all this is that you see Khalil Rountree, you know, he's defending these passes and he's trying to roll. And then when he gets in bad spots, he tries to roll like that. And I just, I mean, again, maybe this works with his training partners. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe he's had a lot more success with this in the training room. I don't know the answer to that. But I can just say rolling out of chokes or rolling out of bad positions, you know, there's there's just got to be some baseline conditions that are established. And um, it's a good instinct to want to keep moving. But you got to keep moving the you know the way that that makes sense for uh, for victory. But uh, you know what? Credit to Tyson Pedro. He got dropped in the first, held on, got the takedown, established dominant control all the way through. Did something kind of interesting with this choke around the shoulder. Never seen anything quite like that before. Snatches him off of his base, gets on top, takes what the guy is giving him, which is no small feat, and gets that tap right there that's a strong debut and look, look, look at Roundtree's feet look at me he's getting bowed out here he's sinking his hips in that's a strong debut for Tyson Pedro still a lot of work for him to do of course but he showed us on the ground he's got some skills to be reckoned with last but certainly not least we take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead uh, there is a lot to get to actually so there's three events the first one of which will be at the Palms Resort and Casino the Ultimate Fighter 24 finale a.k.a. Uh, UFC Fight Night. I don't know what the number is at this point. UFC 102, I think. Something like that. Um, I'm not even sure what how they're gonna, else they're going to call it. But and in any case, this will be on Saturday, December 3rd. In the headlining role, it's going to be Demetrius Johnson. They've got it against Tim Elliott, although that's yet to be determined, although maybe he's the winner. I'm not sure he has to fight uh, Wednesday for that to be the case, but whatever. Joseph Benavidez is going to uh, face off against Henry Cejudo. Jake Ellenberger versus Jorge Masvidal. That's a great fight. Uh, uh, Ion Kutaleba defeating Jared Cannonier. Uh, will be fighting, excuse me, Jared Cannonier. Sarah McMahon fighting Alexis Davis. Gray Maynard versus Ryan Hall. Rob Font versus Matt Schnell. Kaylin Curran versus Jamie Moyle. Josh Stansbury versus Devin Clark. Elvis Mutopchich taking on Anthony Smith. Dong Hyung Kim versus Brendan O'Reilly. And then Brandon Moreno versus Ryan Benoit. Speaking of Ryan Hall, uh, if you haven't already, check out my technique talk that I did with him on the modernization of grappling. Uh, that was over the weekend. Uh, for those of you who uh, wrote many positive things about it and listened to it and or read it, thank you very much. Now, that leaves us two Bellator events. Bellator 166 and Bellator 167. Both of these are taking place on Friday and Saturday night at the Windstar Casino in Thackerville, Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, Bellator 166. This will be on Friday night. For the bantamweight title, Eduardo Dantas will face Joe Warren. For the featherweight co-main, AJ McKee taking on uh, Ray Wood. Then you have Marcus Galvan taking on L.C. Davis. And then Chris Honeycutt is back against Ben Ryder. Uh, then on Saturday, head-to-head with the previous UFC event, you've got Bellator 167. It's the rematch. Darian Caldwell taking on Joe Timonglow. John Teixeira versus Justin Lawrence. Lawrence, excuse me. Uh, Ilima McFarlane versus Emily Ducati. Emily Ducati, a very strong women's flyweight fighter. Give her a look. And then Chidi Injokawani taking on Andre Fialo. 
Uh, by the way, Jared Trice is on the prelims on 167, so be on the lookout for him. So, a lot for this weekend. I uh, hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. Thank you for watching today's episode. I really appreciate it. Uh, give it a thumbs up. Please share it around. And, uh, uh, yeah, good stuff all the way through. So, enjoy your week. I'll be back here next Monday for this podcast. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching. Enjoy the fights. <laughs>